welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Jillian Riley. After teaching a program on quitting smoking for 12 years, Jillian Riley ran her first course on how to take control of overeating in 1997. Since then, she's held weekend workshops, delivered the course through webinars, and is currently offering a six-week online course. Her work has the focus of the extraordinary and often ignored role of the mind in behavior change with regard to things like stopping smoking and eating less. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Um, Jillian, welcome to the show. Um, Jillian Riley um, taught a quitting smoking program for 12 years, and then she talked about how to take control of overeating in 1997. She's held workshops and delivered webinars through, since 2017, and is now about to begin her 18th six-week online course. So um, she contacted me. She reminded me of that. Then I looked at her work, and as you know, the doctrine is all about behavioral change, and for a long time, I have been interested in behavioral change, but it's your relationship to food as much as the food itself that makes a difference. So Jillian gave an extraordinary TED talk, which I was really impressed with. And so Jillian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, wonderful to be here. Thank you for... So I'm going to start out with just a simple question and we'll work through it. Um, I have the one message I'd like to get out of you, which I'll share in a second, but what is the one message that you'd like to give to the audience today from your that you're, you're trying to bring forward into the world? The one message. This one, sorry. That's, that's always harder than a lot. Freedom of choice. Pardon? Freedom of choice. Right, and that's, I would say the same thing is that when you feel locked in by rigid approaches to diet, your lifestyle in general, rigidity is actually a huge problem in firing up the nervous system and physiology and actually increasing pain. So that's what I'm extremely interested in is the relationship to food. I will give a little background as a surgeon. We look at eating as a waste of time because every minute we spend eating is a minute later we go home and we're working 12, 14, 16 hour days every day. So we just inhale it and we don't think about about what we eat. Don't think much about what we eat and we eat badly. We really eat badly. It took me a long time, maybe the last only the last 10 years, have I realized how deadly food can be to your immune system, inflammatory response, and all sorts of things. So my interest today is we're not here to talk about, in my mind, a specific diet to do this, this, and this, but just the generalized approach to food. So I'm curious about your background and how you came to your current approach. Well, the story, I suppose, starts in the early 80s, and certainly by 1984, I um, set up a stop smoking program in North London, which is where I'm from. And I just set it up as my own business, um, self-employed, taking people through the process of stopping smoking and doing telephone follow-up afterwards to support people in staying stopped, because that's really key to the whole thing. It's not just stopping. It's being able to maintain it long term. And um, really, um, sort of cussing my teeth, so to speak, uh, with smokers and, and really understanding 
the sense of self-agency, the, the sense of standing in that space of freedom of choice, which, which you interpreted in terms of flexibility and with food, yes it is, but not really with smoking. Um, it, it, you know, part of freedom of choice is to do flexibility, but really it, it's recognizing the freedom of choice to act or not act, to, to smoke or not smoke. And then even after having quit smoking, freedom of choice isn't removed. Like a person may actually um, remain abstinent for the rest of their lives, but their freedom hasn't been removed. And that is a very tricky point to get across. It, it might sound obvious, I don't know, but it's a real, um, a real challenge for a lot of smokers to, to, un, to grasp, especially smokers who are concerned, afraid, very understandably um, concerned about the health. So the idea that they are free to return to smoking, whether they actually do that or not, is, is a big one to, to grasp. But if they don't, then it, it becomes actually much more difficult to stay stopped. And that's what I saw over and over again, is that the people who get it do well, people who don't get it tend to relapse. And when you say, when you say get it, and we say it, what do you mean by it? Get it, get, get that the freedom to smoke hasn't been removed. So I find that extremely interesting because we now know a couple of things that smoking actually hits the muscarinic receptors, which are strongly anti-inflammatory. And we know anxiety is an inflammatory state. And so anxiety is not psychological, it's an inflammatory metabolic state, it's physiological, it is not psychological, and smoking actually works to calm down that system very effectively. So one of the problems with quitting is that smoking actually works to calm people down. The second thing, the root cause, of, by the way, is anxiety, which is physiological, not psychological. So the process I do is now focus mostly on anxiety, which again is, is a physiological state. By learning to calm down the physiological state, you take away that root cause and the need to smoke. But what I find most interesting about your concept is that there's a paper out of Austin, Texas, that shows there's several things that are anti-inflammatory. One of them is community. Another one's a positive outlook. Um, the other one is, um, what is it? So community outlook. But the big one is a sense of control. Yes. It's actually anti-inflammatory. I'm sorry, the final one is hope. But that sense of control is, remember, the antidote to anxiety is control. When you lose control, you become more anxious. And so what's happening is that from a physiological standpoint, it's brilliant. Yes. And the paper shows actually a sense of control directly lowers inflammatory markers. Yes. There's little inflammatory proteins called cytokines, and they drop down dramatically with a sense of control. Yes. And conversely, and this is what I love to talk to you about, particularly in the second podcast, is that you give people freedom. They do. They have a choice, and just having that choice in itself is actually part of the, a big part of the treatment. But conversely, and we'll talk about food here in a second, is that you start making a set of rules in your life that if I smoke, I fail, I have to do this, or with diet, I've got to eat a certain way or else I fail. 
we tend to drive ourselves with negative voices, which eventually just wear us down. And so as far as change in behavior, we're all programmed to be negative self-criticism and allowing yourself choice and looking at your relationship to food is actually way more important than the actual diets that you pursue. So any thoughts on that? Well, I think that's an interesting idea. Um, I, I, I just don't know of any research or any way of actually proving that one way or the other which is more important, what you eat or your, the attitude you bring to what you're eating. Uh, the, the, the point really is that what I'm seeing in people is that eating uh, less in general and eating less of the hyperpalatable, you know, the rubbishy stuff, but, or just eating less um, is, is obviously a, a, a good thing, a, a, you lower inflammation yes you you healthier for all kinds of reasons you know the ability to perhaps do a bit of intermittent fasting and not rebelliously overeat at the end of that which you know isn't always the case it, you know many people do that so it's sort of counterproductive but so the ability to have control over over food intake um Yes, that results in an, an improved um, intake in all kinds of ways. But how much that, just that factor, is um, a contributing factor in lowering, in lowering information and how much the quality and quantity of what's being consumed is the factor, I, I wouldn't know. So I, let me I, actually. The two go together in terms of long term success. Right. Well, let me ask you, let me state, I didn't quite say it correctly. So I agree what you actually eat makes a huge difference. Mm. But if you're always negative on yourself when you fail, then your chance of actually sticking with a better diet drops down. Is that a fair statement? Yes, absolutely. Okay. That's what I really meant. It's not like either yeah. or, it's a combination. Yeah. So because what caught my attention on the smoking conversation, which I think is what I'm talking to you today, is that um, I may have a friend of mine who wanted to lose some weight, tried forever to do it. And he decided he chose to, quote, love himself first, no matter what he did, whether he, whether he stuck with the diet or didn't stick with the diet. And he just switched his thinking and he lost about 15 pounds in about six months. So I think that's what you're saying is that we if we're always on a specific diet, it's harder to enjoy eating. Sorry, say that again. When you're on a diet, it's harder to enjoy eating. Is that what you just said? If you're on a rigid approach to your diet the rigidity i think is the problem yeah yeah it is it's a big problem but the trouble is you see a lot of people i work with are long-term yo-yo dieters right and the only way they know to follow a diet the only way they've ever been able to do it is to do it in a rigid way so right. if they don't do it in a rigid way then it's like the thin end of the wedge and there's a little bit more of that and a little bit more of that and you know, within a few days or weeks, it's all, you know, gone to pop. Right. So, so that's, that's to me the essence of change in general. People know that they want to make news resolutions, they don't keep them. Same thing with the whole pain process, they start to get better than they quit. Food is a classic example of starting and quitting. So that's the issue I'm really interested in today is that, I mean, we do yo-yo things a lot in our lives with food being classic. 
How do you change that? That's a big ask. <laughs> it's something. Well, it's something I've been absolutely passionate about for a very long time. Since '97 um, was when I first ran my first "How to Take Control of Overeating" program, and I've been doing it ever since then. And a lot of what I've learned is from clients. You know, I mean, all the questions people ask, where people. So I sort of keep thinking, oh, right, they didn't understand that very well. Let's let's zero in on that. And I've just been and and, you know, I've read and researched all, all around this and checking it all out. I mean, absolutely fascinating, fascinating subject. Um, I, I, maybe one place to jump in is to understand something that's, I think, fairly well understood, which is the idea of Pavlovian conditioning. Is what? Pavlovian conditioning. So for some people that might be not completely, completely familiar with that term, could you explain oh, what that is? Sure. Um, a very well-established phenomenon in terms of how our brains work. Pavlov was the first person who, what he did was train dogs to expect food delivery when a particular bell was rung, a certain sound. And he just did that by associating the bell with the food. And then he found he rang the bell and the dog salivated because they were going, oh, great food. Yes. <laughs> so they they were interested in that. And that, I think one point to get out of that is it's learned behavior. Okay. And so that's interesting. So that gives the possibility of unlearning it which you can do, and that's been demonstrated. In fact, apparently Pavlov actually did that. I mean, what he did was he rang the bell and didn't give the dogs food. Right. Um, and eventually they just go, oh, it's bell. Because see, dogs don't normally salivate when they hear bells. That isn't right. an inherent thing. It's, it's really important to understand that bit. Right. Uh, but the other thing is, is, it's not a coincidence that they salivated. Um, that cue response that learned response to the cue or let's put it that way um is is a very normal and natural phenomena that that's it's very good for us it it's actually the beginning of the digestive process so there's salivation for a purpose and that is to begin the process of digesting food which is on its way or we think it's on its way also, insulin is released into the bloodstream. Um, digestive enzymes are released into the stomach. And so people can actually feel hungry just because that bell is rung or the, the equivalent. And of course, what um, Pavlov didn't know, but we know now is there's a release of dopamine, which focuses the, the brain or mind on food. Right. It initiates what they call foraging behavior. Okay, or so foraging behavior. People run into their kitchen and start foraging. Like, right. where's the chocolate I hid so I wouldn't eat it now? Right. And so there's that whole um, biological, biochemical response that is good for us. It's supposed to get us to, out of our cave so that we go find something to eat. Right. Um, I think that what a lot of people don't realize is how deeply embedded that is in our brains right uh, that it is a, 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 a you know um, a neural pathway that it's, it's been created through neuroplastic change for maybe decades 
And so, you know, it's, it's going to vary from person to person, but it can be, you know, oh, I just got home. Oh, I'll eat something or I've just finished doing this project or that job. And what shall I do now? Oh, eat something. I mean, it can be very, very subtle thoughts. It doesn't it isn't necessarily, oh, I feel awful. You know, I'd better eat something because, you know, because I feel so, you know, distraught. It can be very, very subtle things. So I think I hear you saying something which is different than my historical concept of food. So with Pablo, he changed the behavior with positive rewards. With dieting, we tend to punish ourselves if we don't hit the mark. We don't necessarily look at dieting in terms of a positive reward system. Is that a fair statement? Well, the positive reward would be the benefit of eating less. Right. But that's sort of jumping ahead. The first thing is to understand the only reason I'm wanting to eat in the first place is because um, I've conditioned myself to expect food in this circumstance. I got it. Okay. And the question is, is, is there, what would I get out of satisfying that? But, but see, the first step is realizing that's the only reason it's there. I'm not I'm not actually in need of food. Like I have clients who have that conditioning happen every time they walk into their kitchen. Every time they walk in their kitchen, they eat something. I got it. It doesn't mean they're hungry. So the first thing is to understand, oh, that's just because I trained myself. That's just a bell ringing. It doesn't mean that I necessarily have to act on that. And then to recognize, would I get, you know, how rewarding is the food? Right. Is, there, is there a downside if if I eat something now? Right. Or as you're saying, the positive re reward, is there an upside if I don't eat something like weigh that up? But, and this is this is the key, is am I um, processing that? Am I sorting through that those options in a state of free choice or in a state of prohibition? because that is huge for long-term dieters. And why do you say that? Um, that's interesting. So I, I understand that intellectually, I walk into the kitchen, I eat something I intellectually know is probably not the best thing for me. So you've made a point which I think is really important that eating is deeply programmed, of course, foraging is deeply programmed. And of course, our lives will get programmed to act a certain way in certain circumstances. So the rewards there are pretty immediate. And then the rewards of not eating are sort of longer term. So that's a big switch to go from these immediate rewards to the longer term rewards. Um, how do you deal with that? Or how do you conceptually approach that? Yeah, that is, it's so spot on. The point is that most people, for, for most people I work with, their positive reward is weight loss. And that is one heck of a positive reward for my clients. Right. Okay. So the problem with that, as you've just pointed out, is it's long term. Right. For most people, really long term. Like right. before they're even halfway there, it can be like months or years. I mean, it's such a long way off. Right. And so the way that I address that is to encourage people to step back as much as they can from weight loss being the positive reward okay. 
and to look more to um, just kind of emphasize or prioritize more immediate um, effects. But in the whole scheme of things, they may not seem so important as getting into a smaller dress size or you know whatever the, that goal is. But it's much more um, meaningful and useful and practical because of its immediate feedback. So for example, me walking into the kitchen and saying, oh, I wanna eat something, I could think to myself, yeah, I, I could have a snack now, but isn't dinner coming up in you know like an hour? Dinner's gonna be ready in an hour. And if I start snacking now, what I know is I'm not gonna enjoy my dinner so much. And, and that's a genuine, a real, very, very genuine concern. I, you know, I'm not, it, it, as I say, it might seem minor in terms of weight loss, but it's immediate. Right. It's very, very immediate. That's a benefit that I can really enjoy and appreciate um, within the next hour. <laughs> or things like sleeping better, waking up feeling more alert after not having been snacking and picking and eating all evening long. So just, and I realize that's not immediate, but it's fairly immediate in terms of, um, or just things like, um, just that sense of control. Like I have, I, I'm in integrity with myself. I'm doing what I set out to do, what I want to do. I, I'm, I'm behaving in a way that, is how I want, how I truly, genuinely want to behave. So that kind of feedback is, you know, virtually immediate. And yes, over time, it does add up to weight loss, but uh, it's, it's an important shift. Well, I want to go into a lot more detail. Again, the impact of keeping choice at the forefront has on things, but um, this is really, really interesting because you really, again, we're talking about the approach to food and we tend to be negative when we fail, happy when we succeed. And that positive back and forth, that yo-yo dieting, as you pointed out, just doesn't work long term. So keeping that choice in the forefront, I think is an extremely interesting concept that uh, I have to think about a little bit. That's really interesting. Um, so are you, you're holding courses now, I'm assuming online, or do you hold them in person? I mean, how do we access your services? I um. Well, there's many things. I've, I've written two books, uh, a long version and a short, easy read version of, of this work on taking control of overeating. Um, I also have a book on how to stop smoking, but that isn't really the focus of my work now. It's how I started in this. So I'm sorry, what, what's the title of the book? Which one? The smoking book? The, the, the eating book. It's uh, the, the main one. The larger one is called Eating Less. Eating less, okay. And then um, then do you have a website? Yes, eatingless.com. Okay. And eatinglessonline.com. Okay. So you have eatingless online is about my online work. And so I do a six week course. It's very interactive, very hands on. So I'm talking to people, answering questions, doing live webinars where there's an interaction there. So I'm taking people through the material over six weeks. So they have uh, each week, they have a new bunch of like videos to watch, mostly videos. Um, and 
and then we work through that so that people understand each kind of part of it and also the practical application of it. And I run that course, I have been running that course three times a year. So okay, I fantastic. February in May and then again in September, October. Then I'm guessing you are getting pretty consistently good results. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, we're not going to go into chronic pain today at all, but it's the same process of reprogramming your brain, brain to be out of pain, not necessarily fixing it. So instead of fixing, you're actually moving forward with where you want to go, which is a huge, huge difference. So um, I'm impressed with the approach. I'm excited about it. And uh, we'll talk in a few minutes. So thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Jillian Riley, for being on the show today and for sharing her insights about the role that conditioning plays in overeating and the behavior changes we can make to eat less and enjoy life more. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.